Holidays are right around the corner, and if you're looking for that perfect gift for that cyclist in your life, think about getting them a digital subscription to either VeloNews Pass or Active Pass. You've heard me talk about our digital subscriptions before on the podcast. VeloNews Pass, $49 a year, gets you exclusive online content, print magazine subscription to VeloNews, uh, industry discounts, and other cool stuff. Active Pass, $99 a year, gets you all of that, plus coaching advice, Velo Press books, access to events. Uh, you can learn more at velonews.com forward slash active pass. And right now, the content on velonews.com that you get access to, uh, we have a great look at the famed coach Eddie B, who recently passed away, and his impact on American cycling. Andrew Hood also has an inside look at the transfer market for 2020 heading into 2021 and why it's so strange due to the COVID-19 shutdown. So, VeloNews Pass and Active Pass, think about it for that cyclist in your life. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Uh, welcome back to the VeloNews Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a Tuesday morning here from uh, the home office away from my home office. My wife and I have done a little working vacation away from home up here in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And I recommend it. You know that thing where it's like you just trade homes with someone else? Going to someone else's home is a new enough experience that it feels like you've actually gone on a vacation, which, you know, we can't really do because of the pandemic. Um, I've done that a few times this year. And just like getting out of my old routine, actually keeping my old routine, but doing it in a new location um, is invigorating and recharging of batteries, which I think a lot of us have had to do after such a crazy and busy year. Um, got a great podcast coming up today. Second half of the show, I have an interview with American Lauren Stevens of Tipco Silicon Valley Bank. Lauren takes us inside her very successful and very um, unorthodox racing year. Lauren was all set to race the European road season and North American road season when COVID-19 hit, threw a big monkey wrench into her career, as it did to every other cyclist out there. And she innovated, adapted, and came out one of the most successful cyclists of 2020, winning the Zwift Tour de France, the Tour de l'Ardèche, um, and doing some gravel racing and really breaking out of the road racer mold. And Lauren takes us inside that uh, season and what it was like for her. Before we get to Lauren, though, I have Andrew Hood on the line, and we are going to talk about cycling's transfer market because here it is, mid-November, and the cycling silly season is not just going strong. It's like in full force right now. And this is changing the dynamic of the transfer market because usually this is kind of going on like October September. I mean, really, it gets started at the Tour de France, but because of COVID and because everything has been pushed back, it's created some interesting dynamics going on in the transfer market. Um, Andrew Hood, um, I hope that you are not like looking to transfer right now. I mean, are you uh, doing the thing that some of these riders are doing? You know, floating your resume to a bunch of other cycling sites out there. You know, working the angles, seeing what salaries are doing. Um, you can you can tell me. I mean, I know we'll be negotiating at some point, but. Um, you you can let me know what your your transfer what your market value is right now. Uh, I think you know I want to go into like do something like team PR. You know, hang hang around all day with cyclists who are 
who perhaps hate me and then hang around with journalists who are, you know, real pains in the asses, you know, anybody that does that job, I've got real respect for stuck in between those two worlds of very different and uh, very demanding little subgroups there and be that middle person is a chef to those people to do that job. Yeah. Being team PR means fearing the sound of uh, WhatsApp alerts on your phone as they come in hot and heavy after every stage or after any news story involving your rider. Maybe they posted something dumb on social media or something like that. And it's just like, ping, 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 ping. Yeah, I'm sure a few of those, a few of those people that have those jobs, uh, have some sleepless nights and have some heartburn for some of the things that some of the writers might be posting on social media. Everyone knows how sensitive those can be. Uh, we love you, TPR. Please keep putting all those great quotes up onto the to WhatsApp channels and, and responding to us when we're reaching out for writer quotes. So Andy, you have this piece on the site today, sort of a 30,000 foot explainer of why this year's transfer market is so different because of the COVID-19 pandemic from a, uh, you know, from a 30,000 foot perspective, why is it so different now? You know, what are the dynamics that you're noticing that are most different from years past? Yeah, that's right, Fred. I mean, it's very different this year, of course, for COVID just kind of threw a wrench in everything because every year, actually, you mentioned before, you know, contracts would be signed in the fall and then it got moved up and most of the deals were being done uh, really uh, during the tour, you know, the famous rest day chats that they'd have between agents and managers and even the, the the tendency over over the last year or two before 2020 was to have the deals done in may april may june that you know teams were not waiting riders and agents were putting the pressure on to get these contracts signed earlier and earlier and then you know the flip side of that then we'd see these weird decisions made by team rosters sometimes it's like hey you know why isn't that star rider racing the tour de france ah He's probably going to a different team next year. But in 2020, all that changed and everything is just simply on hold for a lot of teams. It's really kind of like a, a tale of two Pelotons. You have cer- certain teams that have their budgets guaranteed by either a generous sponsor or the terms of the contracts. Teams like Ineos, all the French teams, uh, some of the Belgian teams and uh, Israel Startup Nation. No budget cuts. They have full-on budgets. And they've been very aggressively working the market. I mean, Enios, again, leading the way this year, signing a whole bevy of, of top riders. And then on the other half, you have teams that are pinched by budget. You know, we saw Astana this week announce a new co-sponsor, the first in its franchise history, more than 10 or 15 years, having a new kind of outside sponsor come in from outside the whole Kazakhstan program. So COVID has just thrown everything off the rails. And now we're into November with a lot of teams waiting to see if they might be able to pick up a few extra guys, waiting to see how their budgets are coming together, and waiting, of course, to see if a team like NTT, kind of on the ropes right now, if they can pull the rabbit out of their hat and save the team for next year. Yeah, I mean, every year I feel like the transfer market gets held up by the one or two teams out there that are sort of on the the bubble for coming back. This year, though, it was like two teams. So you had CCC team and then NTT. And we've now learned that CCC team will not come back. Its World Tour license is going to go to Circus Wanty Gobert. And that's an interesting dynamic because while some jobs may open up, it's not going to be like we saw with like uh, Israel Startup and Katusha where, you know, all of a sudden a whole bunch of jobs open up. That's because this team, it's Pro Conti team. I think there's a number of riders that the team is going to want to bring up to the World Tour level. They feel like these guys are ready for the World Tour experience. So... 
you know, you see a couple spots open up here and there. Guys with relationships with the team, really prominent, you know, riders out there are going to get a ride on that. And then you have NTT, which we've kind of known throughout the year that this team was in trouble with its sponsor. And is it going to come back as World Tour? Is it going to come back as Pro Conti? Is Bjarne Reese going to be involved? You know, this is a, this is a team that, you know, was the Kubeka team, uh, Dimension Data. Um, and so that's also been playing the waiting game. But now here we are mid-November and it's there's still not a resolved situation. And that's pretty late in the World Tour schedule for a, a team not having its stuff together for the following season. And that has to be just an incredibly stressful situation for riders on that team. I mean, I'm thinking specifically of like Ben King, Domenico Posovivo, um, some of these guys whose place in the sport really is going to rely on that team um, team coming back in general. What's the, situ- what's the status and situation with NTT right now? Yeah, like you said, Fred, um, the marriage between Reese and Douglas Ryder did not really work out as it uh, a shotgun wedding, perhaps it might have been. Remember, Reese came in at the beginning of the season, uh, supposedly bringing on a, a 30% uh, purchase into the team uh, kind of equity, buying out a portion of the world team license with some co-sponsored money. Evidently, that that never materialized. And there was some sort of fallout between point A and point B between those two because uh, we, we heard and was confirmed during the Tour de France that NTT – and another co-sponsor were both leaving it in the season and more COVID victims, you know, just general budget crunches behind some of these companies that back cycling couldn't really rationalize an outlay of five, 10, 15 million a year while they might be laying off uh, workers at their companies, what have you. So uh, they went into panic mode, trying to find a new sponsor to save the team. Something happened. Reese left officially last week, official announcement came out, no new sponsor, Reese is leaving taking his Danish partners with him. And then lo and behold, literally uh, 72 hours later, Douglas Ryder pings out there. It's like, oh, things suddenly are looking more promising. We might have a sponsor to save the team next year. The big question mark is really is, does it stay world tour or does it kind of go a notch lower down to the pro Conti level? Uh, Douglas Ryder still controls that world tour license. Uh, we had heard that he was trying to sell it or at least find a new sponsor to come in. Um, because normally a world tour license holds a lot of value. Remember how that's how Jim Okovitz, you know, he saved BMC because they had that world tour license and it was valid and still still valid going into the next season. Could bring in uh, CCC. That team imploded as well. Um, but that license was purchased by the Circus Wanty Group. So having a valid world tour license means a lot to these teams. But sometimes it's you get the new guy to come in to take over your operation or you end up selling the license to a, a rival team that already has its own kind of infrastructure set up. So right now we're waiting to see if NTT does come through Douglas Ryder comes through the new sponsor. It sounds like something's cooking, uh, but a few riders have left already. We saw uh, Valgren, uh, Eddie, Eddie uh, Bosenhagen is supposedly out the door as well. A few other guys have already signed contracts. They're not waiting. Uh, that's always the risk you play. It's like, do you wait on the word of of the manager saying, yeah, yeah, something's happening. And then you risk getting caught out. I remember a few years ago, Van Avermaet, you know, he waited for Okowitz for a long, long time. And you saw this year, he did not wait for Okowitz. When uh, when CCC went down in flames, he very quickly, uh, he landed a three-year deal at AG2R. So 
Uh, a lot of times it's just uh, you got you got to cover your own interest sometimes at the at the loss of a team. Yeah, I think it's one of the elements of being a world tour level pro cyclist that um fans and amateur cyclists and even lower level pros don't really think about. Like the stress involved of being a rider at that level isn't just about training stress and are you going to win and all these different other stresses, but yeah, it's like is my team going to be around next year and if the team is on shaky ground, which like it seems like every rider at some point in their career finds themselves in a situation where they're waiting on a Jim Okowitz or waiting on a Doug Ryder to like pull a rabbit out of a hat. And like what the, the decision you make in that moment could have this huge impact on the future of your career. And I mean, that's a situation, like I said, Ben can't, you know, a lot of Will Barta, a number of these American riders, big prominent riders are finding themselves in that situation. And um, it's just an element of cycling that seems to be there year in, year out that um, even accomplished riders have to uh, have to go through that. Um, when I was thinking about the transfer market hoodie in, in this discussion and COVID's impact on it, one thing came to mind, which is that you know, you. I've heard this story from a number of agents over the years, which is either the first, you know, the Tour de France marks this very important um, moment in the the cycle, like the annual cycle of renewing and signing new contracts, which is, you know, the big, big, big stars of the of the sport. They're they're renewing and signing sort of before the tour, but at the tour itself, that's where a lot of the discussion gets done around sort of the second, third, fourth tier guys, you know, sort of the workaday riders. And um, a lot of it happens in this scene at like the first rest day or the second rest day where there's almost like this musical chairs between rider agents and general managers. It's sort of like, you know, when you're watching a nature show and they're talking about like when like a moth is like mating with the other moth and it's like... When the moon hits 47 degrees in the uh, sky and the, you know, the temperature is just right, the male moth emerges and then the female moth is in there and they like find the right place and do their little dance and they mate and the moth species carries on. And it's like that with the Tour de France, which is like the first rest day, all the general managers of the World Tour team congregate in a hotel, an undisclosed lob lobby of an undisclosed hotel, and all of the major agents for all of these riders emerge from their, you know, their offices and their spreadsheets with their, you know, size triple XL lattes, and they go in there too and do a round robin musical chairs talking to all these GMs about their clients and pitching their clients and, hey, you know, what's, what openings do you have next year, yada, yada, yada. And like, it's not necessarily where like the contracts are stamped, but it does mark this sort of important discussion point in the annual cycle of riders signing traffic contracts and renewing contracts. But of course, as we knew about this year's Tour de France with social distancing and the whole bubble concept, like you couldn't get anywhere near a team GM. Um, and these agents, they couldn't, it's like, you can't do that under social distancing. You, you know, you're wearing a mask. You're not going to a rider hotel. You're not having a face-to-face -face with anyone inside of the bubble. So the whole um, mating dance of agent and GM was totally taken out of the equation this year. And um, I need to, I need to call up some of my agent contacts to see like what you know was that just a like a really bad like zoom call or you know a bunch of whatsapp messages like how was the um the annual mating dance of agents and gms replicated amid social distancing and bubble this year i, I don't know yeah I, I don't know what energy bars you're eating Fred, but can i have one 
<laughs> the, the um, yeah, you're right about the bubble. I mean, it certainly ex- extended to everything within the kind of larger cycling family. And I know, you know, normally you go to these training camps and these races, and you'll see the the Lombardies and the McQuades and all these agents kind of roaming around in the pits. And, you know, we weren't seeing those guys around this year just because, you know, they couldn't get there. You know, they didn't have the credentials and they didn't have the, uh, you know, the access to get to, uh, to to talk to these guys face-to-face. So, yeah, certainly very different kind of landscape going into uh, the negotiation process. But I know that uh, certainly this year, talking to some contacts uh, for, for this story, they were just saying that, um, you know, a lot of teams got budget pinches even though the team survived covid they might not have as much money as they normally would so they're hearing about uh, offers coming less money than they normally had expected a lot of times maybe just one year contracts instead of two or three um and also teams are you know stopping short of filling out their rosters you know you might you might next year see a lot of teams with you know instead of 28 30 riders there'll be a few several teams with 24 25 26 riders which could be kind of really on the limit of what a world tour uh, team can handle in terms of the calendar. But the teams are also expecting that COVID is going to disrupt next year's racing calendar. You know, we're already seeing all these early season races already being canceled. Uh, So they're saying, okay, well, most of the racing will be in Europe. Most of the racing will be kind of old school European calendar. So we might not need 30, 32 riders. We probably can get by with 26, 28. So all those elements are adding up to be – a very different kind of signing uh, season where I think we're going to see, I mean, according to uh, pro cycling stats, which kind of updates and tracks uh, in an easiest way of listing all the riders without contracts, according to them, there's still more than a hundred riders without contracts. I say half those, half those names on that list probably have deals that have not been publicly announced yet. I know, I mean, I could confirm just off of glancing at that list 2025 that I already knew about that haven't been publicly confirmed yet, but, there's already been about 20 or so riders who've already retired this year. That's not an average number, but going, you know, if that hundred, if say half actually have jobs, the other half of that half might get pinched out. You, pre, you could see 50 riders or, or more not having contracts for next year because it's not only affecting the European world tour circuit. It's also impacting uh, the continental teams, the impacting the women's teams, impacting the U the US teams. Yeah, thank you to our friends at PCS for their list of riders with no team this year, which I am looking through right now. 103 names on it. Again, a lot of these guys, it's just it hasn't been announced yet. You know, Teo Gagenhart, I'm sure he's going to find a job next year. Um, you know, Miguel Angel Lopez, I'm sure he's fine. But you start going down the list and you're like, uh, Sylvain Dillier, uh, you know, Jay McCarthy. Guillaume van Kiersbolk, um, Steen Vandenberg, Danilo Weiss, Mikkel Rehm. I mean, some of these names that are sort of middle of the pack, you know, really good domestiques, guys who could get in a breakaway and uh, dreams could come true for them. Um, these are the types of guys where it could go one way or the other. Jay Thompson. Oh, come on. Someone hire Jay Thompson. I mean, looking at all of the talented riders on this list, Hoodie, I think – you know, I think it's time that Velo News and our our parent company, Pocket Outdoor Media, maybe stepped in and started a uh, world tour team. What do you think? I mean, we could get you know our, our our sister brand, Warren Miller Entertainment, the big ski film. We could get that to uh, sponsor the team, Team Warren Miller. 
and get like uh, Mikhail Kwiatkowski, Mark Cavendish, Fabio Aru, mm, Gianni Moscon. No, I think we'll we'll leave Gianni off that team. But uh, there's some names here. Will Barta. But yeah, we'll see where Will lands. Yeah. Hopefully he lands somewhere. He had that great time trial at the Vuelta España. Lost by less than one second to Roglic. I thought he had it. And oh, Rogo ruined it for Will. I mean, Will deserved that victory that day. Jonathan Dibbin, great TT, TT rider. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run this up the flagpole here at the parent company, see if we can um, start our own uh, pro cycling team. I heard a ruse coming pretty cheap. Yeah, <laughs> I, bet, I bet he is. Louis Maichis. Um, like, you, uh, you, like you said, Hoodie, this is not just world tour cycling. This is not just European cycling. This is also North American cycling. Um, last week, we got word that the Hincapi team was ceasing existence. This uh, team, formerly known as Citadel, formerly known as, uh, they had a bunch of different names. You know, BMC was a sponsor, um, Arapaho Resources, um, not operating anymore. And, and, and that's a huge loss. I mean, the team had um, hit some bumps in the road in the last few years. I remember they stepped into the pro, they stepped up from continental to pro continental. I believe 2017, after the Amgen Tour, Cal- Tour of California went world tour, in order to guarantee their you know participation, not guarantee it, but have a opportunity to participate, and that move really hit the budget tough. They had to step down to Continental, and then I think there was some other budget cutting. But you know, this is a team that helped guys like Tom Squinch, Robin Carpenter. Um, uh, Joey Roscoff, you know, a bunch of American riders, not just American riders, but a bunch of riders who have made it to the world tour, who have had very successful careers. Travis McCabe came through that program, and I was sad to see it go. My hope is that in the future, it can morph into something else or come back in some way. But that is going to mean a number of Americans will be on the job hunt, and it'll be one fewer team out there to be a home for them. Also, we're continuing to follow the course of Axel Merckx and his Hagen's Berman action team, which is still searching for a co-sponsor um, to punch out a $300,000 um, funding budget uh, budget hole that they need to keep going at the pro-continental level. Actually, I think at the con- it's pro-continental level. Um, because that team, I mean, such a springboard for young talent to the world tour. I mean, this Giro d'Italia this year was like the Hagen's Berman action all-stars Breakout party with Teo winning and Joao Almeida doing so well. I mean, so many of the graduates from that team doing well, but we're having to play the wait and see um, with that. I know the Avolo um, development team has extended its under 23 status to under 24 for 2021 because, you know, all the guys lost opportunities to race this year. So I'm keeping an eye on what's going on from a North American perspective because, you know, I mean, the whole North American Devo scene basically was stopped this year. The big, the best juniors in U23s lost out on opportunities, you know, with U.S. Nationals, with World Championships, with so many of these European races. And, you know, with teams going away, with racing opportunities going away in the States, like this could have a really negative impact on the U.S. development pipeline going forward. I mean, basically pushing pause or even stop on that whole machine for a year or two. So, you know, the transfer market, well, the the silly season, there's some things to laugh at and some stories to keep an eye on. From a North American perspective, it's it's not a particularly positive story to follow. And, you know, I'm writing about it actually in the upcoming Jan Feb issue of Villeneuve. So please check it out. Um, 
before I let you go here, Andy, you know, we got to talk comebacks because 2021, we got some riders coming back from injury. We got some riders who are going to be looking to, um, you know, get back to that level. We got Chris Froome, Rimko, Evanapool, again, Bernal, some others. I mean, what is the comeback story for 2021 that you are most interested in following? Yeah, I think it's all through those top names you just mentioned. I mean, Froomey coming back, you know, can Chris Froome come back to where he was? I mean, after watching him struggle through this kind of abbreviated season, there's some serious question marks about whether Froome raced the way he used to race before his accident. Um, there's been some interesting comments out there. Uh, just saw on social media, I just caught a clip of Johan Bernil speaking on the, uh, I think it's the We Do podcast. And, and he was saying that, you know, he was just pointing out the obvious saying that Chris Froome has a long, long way to go still until he gets back uh, to his top level. And the question there is, you know, at his age, after that injury, after what he's been through and the fact that he's been at the top for so long already, you know, does he really have the battery life in his in his legs to get back to that top level? So that's going to be a pretty huge story going in into next season, you know, the big move to Israel. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Bernal, you know, a lot of pressure on Bernal. I mean, I think the word is that, you know, Bernal is kind of this old school kind of rider. He likes to do those monster rides. You know, we saw it during the lockdown when he was back in Colombia. Once I think they were in lockdown for a while. Once they got out of lockdown, you know, he was just doing these monster rides, you know, 300K rides. I think Bernal was kind of a throwback to kind of the old school way of uh, training where he just likes to put in these big, long miles. And there's kind of the hypothesis was that he kind of just uh, came into the racing season you know, a little bit undercooked and try to catch up and led to some injuries, right? His back and I think his knees problems right now. I don't think those hopefully are not more than just a hiccup. You know, he's got the class in his engine that he will get back. He, he won't be this kind of flash in the pan one-time tour winner. And then, of course, the other is uh, Remco Evenepoel, you know, fell into that ravine at, at Lombardia, took him out of his really highly anticipated Grand Tour debut at the Giro. I mean, how good this Giro would have been with Remco? I mean, you know, would have been, yeah, the class of, uh, you know, 2000, whatever, with these guys all fighting against each other. I'm I'm personally hoping Remco does come back to where he was. He's such an exciting young rider. He just kind of has that, you know, has that panache of personality, not only the way he races, but the way he carries himself after the race. I think the sport really needs a big charismatic personality really to carry the sport right now. We don't see a lot of people really... People are either very PC, you know, they're afraid to offend anybody, they're afraid to say anything, or they're just kind of, you know, boring guys that ride their bikes, you know, very technical, perhaps very great, very good at what they do. They just don't have a lot of uh, panache. So I'm really hoping Remco can get back to winning races and because I, I expect that guy just to be an absolute superstar. Yeah, I think from a personality standpoint, um, I'm also interested to see uh, the progression of Teo because I think from a personality standpoint, he has the ability to lead cycling into a new, a very interesting era. But I'm with you, Remco. I mean, I cannot wait to see him come back to racing. He was so strong in these one-week races, so good in these day-long classics. He's young. He's talented. He just has the whole package. And um, I think, you know, my fingers are crossed. Look, I'm, I'm interested to see how Froome does too. But we've definitely lived through the Froome era, and it was a great era. And, you know, wish the best of luck to him as he comes back to try to get to that top point. But, you know, it would be such a tragedy if Remco weren't able to come back and if that crash so early in his career were to 
take some of the steam out of his engine. So um, come on, Remco. Let's get back there. Well, Andy Hood, I appreciate you coming on this episode to talk cycling transfers. And again, I mean, you know, are you going to have your agent reach out to me? Like we haven't done our preliminary dance either. It's getting it's getting late in the year, man. Like uh, I know you want that big contract bump, but I got to tell you, you know, some of these other publications, they might be shutting down. I don't know what the labor market looks like. I can't I can't say for sure if there's going to be a space for you on the team if you don't uh, get the ball rolling on this thing pretty, pretty quickly. And I know you're only as good as your last posting, so get busy. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right. Thanks to Andy Hood. All right, we're going to catch up with Lauren Stevens to talk Zwift Racing and uh, her big 2020 season. My guest today on the Velo News podcast is a woman who spent much of 2020 crisscrossing the world trying to find bike races. It's Lauren Stevens. Lauren had a crazy year uh, with the Tipco Silicon Valley Bank team. And like all cyclists, her season was derailed by the COVID-19 pandemic. But Lauren got creative. She tried new racing uh new ways of racing her bike out. And in the end, uh, the season was very successful. Lauren, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, Fred. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so, Lauren, before we get into your crazy season, um, I wanted to alert you to some news, which is that you uh, you have actually won one of the most prestigious uh, awards out there in the cycling space, if you, if you ask me. <laughs> Uh, Lauren, we named you our North American Female Cyclist of the Year. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes, that was very exciting news. Um, my dad actually sent me a photo of the magazine um, article that his dentist had sent him. <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, it wasn't for nothing, Lauren. You had an amazing year. You won the Tour de l'Ardèche. You won the Zwift Tour de France. You know, you were in Italy in March preparing for Strada Bianca when all of a sudden word comes on that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is going across Europe. Take me through the next couple days, week or so of your life after that happened. Yeah, so we got the news that Strada Bianca had been canceled. My husband, Matt, and I were in uh, Siena preparing for Strada Bianca. I had skipped out on the first couple races with the team just to give that extra focus and, you know, every day you were checking um, the internet, checking the news, seeing what was going on. And it just seemed it was getting closer and closer that the race was going to be canceled. So just days before um, the race was canceled. Uh, from then, we still thought we were going to have a season. We thought it was Italy that was shutting down and, you know, Italy was out of control. Um, so I headed to Belgium and was planning to do some racing there. But then quickly everything turned um, also in that area. So got back to the U.S. and quickly went to race the Mid-South. I flew in on uh, Friday night and Saturday morning raced the Mid-South, knowing that it was probably going to be the last time to race outside for quite a while. And um, yeah, I was right in that situation. And um, I really buried myself at that race, which I think gave me... Um, the ability to relax at the beginning of the pandemic and um, not stress that there wasn't going to be racing for a while. So I really took that first um, month, I would say, just relaxing and realizing that we didn't know when racing was going to be a begin again. But then once we realized it was going to be a long while, 
um, I started dabbling in Zwift. <laughs> well, so that's the next chapter I want to get into, which is that for some riders, when uh, knowledge of there is no longer racing going on, you know, they kind of went and did long training sessions, Everesting, you know, doing like solo group ride stuff. It sounds like you did some of that too with the solo group ride stuff, but you know, you really embraced Zwift which I thought was interesting because you were a new, you saw sort of a newcomer to Zwift. And, and a lot of the riders I talked to who really committed themselves to Zwift racing this year had some experience with it or had, had already been like, had kind of caught the bug. And, you know, tell me about how you went from being Zwift newbie to catching the bug to then becoming a very successful Zwift racer. Yeah, so living in Texas, um, we're lucky that we can ride outside year round. So Zwift has never been a tool that I felt that I needed. Um, but then when racing quit, I, that was my only opportunity to race and to be competitive. And, um, my job is to race bikes. So this was the opportunity to, um, still get to race while I was at home. And I don't think I realized how much I was going to enjoy it and how much, um, success and how much of a tool it was going to be for my training. Yeah. But like doing it for training is one thing. Going and winning big Zwift races, that's something else. I mean, you uh, and and Tipco Silicon Valley Bank obviously committed yourself and committed as a team to doing some of these early Zwift races. You know, there was the like um, Tour of the Gila and Redlands Classic. Um, but there, I would imagine there has to be some like knowledge and experience that you have to gain very quickly to go from that to winning the Zwift Tour de France against some of these pro women. I mean, what did that process and progression look like for you? Yeah, um, honestly, I spent lots of time riding Zwift and watching YouTube videos of other people racing Zwift. <laughs> um, you know, that's what we use YouTube for these days is to learn how to do things. Um, you know, right now I'm using it to work on my mountain bike skills. And then I was working on it with my Zwift skills. And you can watch others um, to learn how to um, get better at things that you're doing. Um, what would you say were the most important sort of tricks of the trade that you picked up in terms of Zwift racing from watching others that you then applied to your own racing? Yeah, I think it was um, learning how to conserve energy and not just ride full gas the whole time. Because um, I think when you first ride with, you just feel like you're just chasing tail. You're just <laughs> trying to stay in the group, just trying not to get dropped. Um uh, not fear, knowing how people are being able to still sprint at the end. Um, and yeah, just trying to learn how to, how to play the game and realizing that it is a game um, and disconnecting it from road racing. It, it has a lot of similarities from road racing and, you know, it looks like a road race, everything about it, you know, you would think it's road race. And for sure, that's like kind of the starting point to figure out how to play the game. Um, but being open-minded that, it's not exactly the same as being on the road. <laughs> so it wasn't just your fitness and your strengths as the road racer that helped you succeed in these Zwift races. It really was dedicating yourself to learning the craft, watching the races and learning the tricks. I mean, we've definitely heard that from other racers, but how do you go from doing that to then winning this Zwift uh, Tour de France? Because in this race, you're going up against skilled Zwift racers. You're going up against other pro road cyclists. Um, take me through winning the overall at the Zwift Tour de France? Yeah, to win the overall Zwift Tour de France, we actually sat down and figured out, you could only have, I think, four riders per a race, and each rider could only do four of the six races. 
So we figured out which races each rider could score points in and which riders, um, you know, we like we didn't just like say like, okay, you're free on that weekend. Cool. You race that weekend. We were like, okay, no, Sarah Gigante can score points and this stage, this stage, and this stage, no matter what. So we're going to make sure she's in those races. And we didn't look at it from the perspective of, can we win a stage? We looked at it from, how can we get the most riders in the points every stage? So really from like a scientific, you know, strategic background. I like it. You guys were taking Zwift racing to the next level. And I think another interesting component of taking it to the next level is for the grand finale of the Zwift Tour de France, you actually had to travel for it. And that required you to go through quarantine, like spend, what was it, 10 days, two weeks, um, you know, locked in a house undergoing quarantine so that you were able to travel overseas for the finals, correct? Yeah, so for the final weekend of Tour de France, so it was three weekends in a row. So the first two weekends I was at home. Um, after the first two weekends, I flew on a Tuesday, arrived in the UK on a Wednesday um, to then be racing the Tour de France on Saturday and Sunday for the final stages. So I had to go through the whole like jet lag of Europe and being in a new location, getting a different trainer playing on my computer instead of my television, um, which if you watch some of those replays, I had to wear glasses to play on my computer because I was so used to having a 40 inch television in my room, in my house to play the game. Um, so yeah, there was definitely some adversity to um, those final stages. So to win the final stage was, I, I was, I was really surprised because that one wasn't as strategic as other courses. So it's half uphill, half downhill. It's a relatively flat course. It's going to be a bunch sprint. And I mean, just like in real life, a bunch sprint is who knows anything can happen. Um, and I was definitely surprised um, <laughs> to win that stage. You know, I saw some similar, like looking at it as an outsider, I feel like I saw some similarities between that strategic thinking and that strategic approach to winning the Zwift Tour de France and your strategic, very strategic win at Lardèche several um, months later. Um, first of all, you know, when the road season did kick off and you found yourself racing again, where did you feel like you, you know, from a fitness perspective, were all good from all that Zwift racing? And where did you feel like you still had to like get uh you know, get something in the legs. Yeah. So our first race was Strada Bianchi. And, um, I definitely didn't have the, I hadn't been doing any outdoor riding. So, um, the climbing was quite difficult. And halfway through that race, I began, I started to cramp and I thought I'd put in the hours. I thought I would have been fine, but 50 K into a race, which has never happened to me before I was cramping. Um, so after Strada Bianchi, um, I built on that fitness I had gotten from Zwift and put in a big endurance block. And from there, um, Ardash, um, was my next focus. And we can see that pairing that intensity that I got from Zwift to a big endurance block, um, just gave me what I needed to carry out through the rest of the season. What do you think the keys were to your Ardesh victory? I mean, this was a strategic race. You and Mavi Garcia were going back and forth. It was sort of a battle of like breakaways, time bonuses, seconds here and there. You know, take us through that battle. 
Yeah, my biggest thing, I've been trying to win our dash for the last three, four years. Um, and we did a team training camp in Nice for two weeks um, just before our dash. And that time with my team, that time of training hard, doing long rides, going on five hour adventures with my teammates. I, that's what gave me what I needed to win that race. That anytime I was in a point of the race where I was suffering and I didn't think I could do it, like I knew that I had trained hard with my teammates and they believed in me and they knew they knew I could do it. And if I didn't give it everything I could, like I was failing them. And that bond that we built by training together, that's why I won our dish. Yeah, I mean, it was a thrilling race. It's a race that a few Americans have won before. But like you said, this is something you've been kind of like knocking on the door of this race um, for a while. I mean, when you look at the season as a whole, then what do you think the keys were to your success? What was it that really propelled? I mean, I think it's safe to say, is this the best season of your career? And what are you attributing it to? Yeah, so this is definitely the best season of my career. And I attribute it to a few things. But Zwift was definitely a huge part of that because it it gave me a chance to like not be afraid to fail. Like you're in your own living room. Like if you fail, like you're just going to go to the couch and watch some television after, I don't know. Like um, I decided that like, I could be a sprinter. I could be a time paralyst. I could be, I could do it all. And you know, that's the kind of writer I came in to the professional side of this as, but had kind of lost that over the years. And for some reason, like Zwift just brought that side of me back in. Like I, I was more of a fighter. I think I had kind of settled um, to being this pretty good rider and, you know, I'm going to be successful and I'm going to get some results here and there. Um, but this year I came out fighting and um, I wanted to make going to Europe worth it. And I think I did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, by winning like this you're Stepping into a winner's circle that includes Mariana Voss, Kristen Armstrong, Amber Nieben, Emma Pooley. I mean, some really top class names of women's cycling. And um, I bet it feels good to uh, add your name to that list. Thank you. Thank you. I'm passionate about the sport. And however I can do it, I want to do it. <laughs> All right. Lauren Stevens, look for her with Tipco Silicon Valley Bank in 2021. Lauren, we'll let you get, let you get back to your afternoon. Thank you.